This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The arms of angels. Of We're going to have no listeners if you do that. Okay. <laughs> my brother says that every time I complain about my upper arm strength, that's the song that plays. In the arms of an angel. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode two of True Crime Creepers. I'm Kristen Williams, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Samantha Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I'm actually scared. You know I'm scared for the dark. That's why I changed my major and I'm doing a crime podcast in the dark. This is not, this is not scary, but it is really interesting. This is the one that I've been keeping secret from you. So what are you going to tell me about tonight? Tonight, we're talking about Coco Chanel. Have you heard of her? What? (laughs) I have, and I have to tell you, have Uh you heard that my mom tried to name her Wawa Coco Chanel, but spelt it wrong? So all the dog's information says Coco Channel. Just a little (laughs) side info for you on that. (laughs) The two ends. They got the two ends. True story. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Okay, so I mm. might be about to ruin Chanel for you. Uh, well, I can't afford her anyways. So <laughs> Um, because turns out, according to documents released within the last decade or so, that Chanel was actually a spy. No. For the, for the Nazis. No. Coco Chanel was a Nazi spy. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, let me tell you. Let's go into it. So the information for this episode comes from the book Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War by Hal Vaughn. 
And the story of Coco Chanel is a true rags to riches story. She was born in France in 1883 as Gabrielle Chanel, and her childhood was far from glamorous. She was born in a poorhouse hospice. That's actually what they called it, and grew up in poverty. She had five brothers and sisters, and her mother died when she was 12. After her mother died, her father sent her brothers to work as farm laborers, and she and her sisters were sent to a convent that was founded to care for the poor and rejected, including running homes for abandoned and orphaned girls. At the time, the book that I read said that it was known that Catholics were really instilling a lot of anti-Semitic beliefs in their teachings founded on the story of Jews being responsible for the death of Jesus. There are varying accounts of Chanel's anti-Semitism, but there are several people with personal accounts of Chanel making anti-Semitic remarks over the course of her life. We're only like two minutes into this podcast and I'm shook. Like I didn't even know her name wasn't Coco. I know. And actually... She got her nickname because she was um, singing in a cabaret and she was singing this song, Who Has Seen Coco? And so they think she got her nickname from that, or it might have been an allusion to the French word for kept woman. So that's how she got her name Coco. Yeah. Uh, By all accounts, the orphanage that she grew up was super terrible. Uh, They were really strict. It was a stark life, but it was here that she learned how to sew. And when she aged out of the orphanage at 18, she went to live in a Catholic boarding house for girls and work as a seamstress. So after that, she started performing, like I said, and realized she she didn't have the talent for performing. It wasn't going to be her future. And she also realized that it was the 1900s, the early 1900s. And she was without a husband or an inheritance. And at the time, as a woman, you'd need one or the other to get anything done. So So wait, where was she performing? Is this like Moulin Rouge situation? That's what I'm picturing. (laughs) No, Moulin Rouge is a, um, what do you call it? What was that place that you went to for your birthday that time? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I believe you mean a burlesque show. (laughs) Yes. But I mean, I've only seen the movie once, so I was just... (laughs) Oh, I've seen Moulin Rouge and Burlesque. I've actually been to Moulin Rouge um, with my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? Why? We were in Paris and I wanted to go, but he actually got turned away at the heat. Well, we went, but he got sent home because he was wearing shorts. Oh, was he showing too much knee? Yeah, I think so. They didn't want him to like take away attention from (laughs) from the ladies. So... At the time, you know, as a woman, you needed a wealthy man or you needed an an inheritance to get anything done. You couldn't get a bank loan. There were no bank loans. There was no women's rights. So she knew she'd need the support of a wealthy man if she wanted to get anywhere in life. And (laughs) just kind of me. I could use one. I mean, it's 2020 and I'm not turning it down, you know? Exactly. So when she's 23, she starts dating an ex-cavalry officer and textile heir named Etienne Balsan, becoming his favorite mistress. And this will end up being number one of a long line of wealthy men that just adored her. (laughs) So she lived with Balsan and she lived it up. It was a decadent and glamorous life full of partying and food and diamonds and just all the finer things in life. Um, okay, Miss Gatsby. I, well, you know, it's funny. I did a lot of research into this because I know The Great Gatsby is set on Long Island. It's set in the Hamptons. 
But F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in Paris at the time. He called it the Jazz Age. Do you think there is a connection? Yeah. Well, I think there's a connection in that Paris very much influenced New York at the time, you know. She's living this really glamorous life. Remember, this is a girl that grew up in an orphanage, and Balsan changed her life. He got her out of her life of poverty and into a life of the finer things. He also taught her equestrian skills, which Mm -hmm. would come in handy years later when she went hunting with her friend slash boyfriend, the Duke of Westminster, and his friend, Winston Churchill. Chanel would have a horse girl face. Yeah, 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 she would. And Winston Churchill will become very important later on in the Nazi stuff. But then she began an affair with one of Balsan's friends, Captain Arthur Mm. Edward Boy Capel, who was wealthy and a member of the English upper class. And he put her up in an apartment in Paris and took her shopping all the time. (laughs) Coco says they were two gentlemen who were outbidding for my hot little body. Is that a direct quote? It's a direct quote. Hot little body. My hot little body. I didn't even know that was in the vocabulary back then. Mm. I actually don't know what she looks like. I'm going to Google image her really. Yeah, go look her up. Go look her up and let me know what you think because, you know, I think she was just kind of this whole package. She was charming and smart and sophisticated and she had all, she was creative and, you know, all these things that people just would fall over themselves over. And you'll see what I mean. Balsan ends up losing his mistress to Capel, but the two remained close friends until his death. Chanel was like the poster child for staying friends Wait, with your ex. who remained friends? Chanel and the first boyfriend or the two guys? Yeah, Chanel and the first boyfriend and the two guys. Oh, okay. They all stay oh. friends. I, oh. I'm telling you, every, every relationship I read was like, they remained close until his death or they remained close for the rest of their lives. And I think it's because... There was no social media. That's why. Okay. (laughs) True. There was no social media. But also because she was so independent, she did not have a desire to get married. She did not have a desire to have a family. And she would just get bored of these men. And she still liked them as people. And so they would just stay friends. And then I think they were just carrying a torch for the rest of their life. And she's, you know, not, (laughs) but just caring about them, but not in that way. Yeah. So she started designing uh, hats while she was living with him. And she became a licensed hat maker and opened a boutique at 21 Rue Cambon in Paris named Chanel Maud. Balsan and Capel, you know, the two gentlemen outbidding for her hot little body, they had both agreed to finance her. So Balsan gave her the shop and Capel gave her all the expenses to run the business. And then a big-time theater actress wore her hats in a play, so her career just really started to take off. So Capel opened another boutique for Coco, and this time she introduced her clothes. Soon she would have nearly 300 employees making a line of dresswear in jersey fabric, and later she opened her landmark Paris boutique at 31 Rue Cambon. I mean, that really blew up quick. It really, yeah, it really did. It was here that she started the House of Chanel. Oh. Yeah, so I think it was a mixture of she needed the men to give her the money because without the money, she couldn't have done it. But it was all her, you know, it was her designs. She was a marketing genius, and I'll get into why later. Without them, she couldn't have done it, but that's only because she grew up poor. Yeah, I mean, if she made hats famous, your girl cannot pull off a hat. No, no. But this is also a a hundred years ago. So over, oh my gosh, over a hundred years ago. 
Which is great because I was just about to ask if she was still living. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Well, she didn't die that long. Okay. It's so weird. Do you feel like the 70s? I mean, we were born in the 80s, like the late 80s. But do right. you feel like the 70s were that long ago? Yeah, I've, I feel like it was a really long time ago. See, I feel like it was not long ago at all. I'm like, she didn't die that long ago. She died in the 70s. And then I'm like, oh, that was 50, <laughs> 50 years Wait, ago. the 70s are 50 years ago? <laughs> oh, I didn't feel like it was that long ago. No. I also don't feel like I'm 33, though. No, I don't either. 34. Oh, God. Mm. Bless you. I know. I know. Okay. So at the end of World War One, Chanel is living it up in Paris. She's popping bottles of champagne. She's being, being driven around in a Rolls Royce. And her gowns were selling for the equivalent of $3,000. What am I doing wrong? Capel couldn't marry Chanel because he was a fancy rich guy and she was an orphan. So he married this other rich lady, but he still kept Chanel on the side. Is she still like known or labeled as an orphan after all that success? Yes and no. In terms of getting one of these people attached to royalty or super rich or that kind of thing, yes, there was a certain level of pedigree that a woman was supposed to have in order to make her marriage material. And Chanel just didn't have that pedigree. So, and she never would. And I don't think she cared. I don't think she wanted to marry any of them. I don't think that's what she was really after. Though she did really love this guy because he died in a car accident in 1919. And after his death, she told a friend that with his death, she lost everything. And that what followed was not a life of happiness. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I know. She did have a strong desire to be loved. And with that desire came a long line of male conquests from Russian Grand Dukes to people like Igor Stravinsky and Pablo Picasso. Oh. I know. As well as a poet named Pierre Riverde, who she is said to have loved for a lifetime. But she's also said to have loved Capel for a lifetime and Balsan for a lifetime and a few other men for the rest of her life. So it's really tough to say. Maybe she did just like love all – I think she just loved men, you know. She just yeah. – She certainly mastered the art of the social climb. And she was hanging out with Parisian high society. She was quoted as saying, and I love this, I love this quote, an orphan denied a home without love, without either a father or mother. My solitude gave me a superiority complex. Ooh. The means of life gave me strength, pride, the drive to win, and a passion to greatness. And when life brought me lavish elegance and the friendship of a Stravinsky or Picasso, I never felt stupid or inferior. Why? Because I knew it was with such people that one succeeds. I mean, I know that I'm about to not like her. I know. But I kind of admire the hustle. I, same. And it's, it's hard not to. And I think that's why she's become such an icon for all of these years. And it's really only recently that all of these documents came out proving that she did what she did. And I definitely think that that changes things. But... I also strongly believe that people are not all one thing. I think she had good qualities about her, but even her good qualities were based on opportunism and climbing the ladder. Yeah. She definitely sounds like someone who, I mean, definitely sketchy and probably doesn't have great qualities, but we like memorialized later in life a little bit. Yeah. I don't don't know the full story, but 
No, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. But Chanel was able to hold her own amongst the elite of the elite. Her new friends appreciated her for her talent, wit, and intelligence. And her minimalist approach to fashion was not far from their abstract ideas of art. So here comes the 1920s, the jazz age of fashion, and Chanel became a peak player in this scene. She was pivotal in turning women's fashion from the soft silhouettes and floor-length dresses to the little black dresses and boas of the 1920s. Flappers were inspired by her look. People were starting to wear sleeveless dresses because of her. There's this quote that I really liked from Sleeping with the Enemy, the book I read. Mm -hmm. Chanel's designs imposed an expensive simplicity, an almost poor look on rich women, and she made millions in the process. Her genius, generosity, her madness combined with her lethal wit, her sarcasm, and her maniacal destructiveness intrigued and appalled everyone. It's like a beautiful revenge, making rich people look poor, (laughs) but then getting rich off of it. Yeah. Um, By 1927, she owned five properties in the most fashionable area in Paris. Meanwhile, at the end of World War I, women started wanting to use more than just soap to smell good. They started experimenting with different fragrances and rumors of a new scent by Chanel started flowing around town. Enter the Russian Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, another boyfriend of hers, and a Russian chemist. The three of them met up to create a scent. She decided to call it Chanel Number no. Five, and to this day, the formula Is it, it was her fifth boyfriend. Funny, no, it wasn't. It was because this chemist made a bunch of scents for her to try one through five, and then like twenty four through twenty nine or something, and she chose the fifth one. So that's Hmm. why she decided to call it Chanel number five. But to this day, the formula is a carefully guarded secret. All that is known is that it is incredibly complicated and uses around 80 ingredients, including some high quality jasmine that can only be found in one area of the world. Uh, I call bullshit. I digress. (laughs) Yeah. But she was a marketing genius with Chanel number five. First was the bottle, which she designed. She decided on the now iconic geometric shape of the bottle instead of a flowery bottle that was really popular at the time. And she also decided not to make some big announcement in the paper. And she went the grassroots way. She wore it around town. She sprayed it in her shop. She gave bottles to her high society friends. Word of mouth ran rampant about the scent. And it was a hit. So she decided that she wanted to grow the brand, but she needed an investor. And this is going to be so important later on. So in 1924, she had a meeting set up with Pierre Wertheimer, whose family owned a perfume company. And the meeting was apparently very short and consisted of Chanel asking him if he wanted to produce and distribute the perfume for her. And he said, why not? But he also said that if she wanted it to be made under the name Chanel, they would have to incorporate. And Chanel despite her marketing genius, her creativity, she was a terrible businesswoman. She said contracts bored her to death. And at the time, she was really distracted by her work designing costumes for the Paris Ballet and also these other two men that she was dating. So see how that would be distracting. Yeah. yeah, So she ended up with only 10% of the company that would end up growing to be the largest, most profitable thing she owned. It made them all incredibly wealthy, but it wasn't until World War II that she realized what a terrible deal she'd made, and she would come to believe that Pierre had taken advantage of her, saying, he screwed me, that darling Pierre. They would have, (laughs) I know, I know. 
they would have this love-hate relationship for her entire life, and it would turn pretty nasty at the height of our story. But Pierre was enamored with Chanel, who was 44 when they met, and that should just give us all hope that age is just a number. And yeah, truly. He would remain enamored with her for the rest of his life, which will be really hard to believe when I get to that nasty part I referred to. And in the end, he would be her savior. So... Yeah. Meanwhile, in 1924, the same time Chanel is closing this deal with the Wertheimers on Chanel number five and living the life in Paris, things are not looking so hot for the Germans since the end of World War I. During the Christmas of this year, hyperinflation was causing riots in the street and the dissolution of the German middle class. In 1919, it was about one U.S. dollar for every five German marks. By 1924, so five years later, it was one U.S. dollar for every four trillion German marks. Excuse me. I know. It, I don't it even was know worthless. how many zeros is in a trillion. It basically meant their, their marks were worthless from <laughs> yeah. five to four trillion. People lost their pensions, their life savings, and they were panicking. Five years later, the U.S. would experience the stock market crash leading to the Great Depression. And the Nazi party, with the message of nationalism, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism, was getting reorganized by that historical gem, Adolf Hitler. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, not a good guy. He is somebody that I would, that I would say, you know, when I said there's nobody that's really like all bad or all good, I would say- Yeah, I was he- wondering if you were going to backtrack on that when we got to him. I figured he would make an appearance in this podcast, <laughs> and I was wondering if we'd revisit that. Yeah, I would say he's an exception to that. I don't see a a redeeming quality of him. In 1924, Chanel began a relationship with the Duke of Westminster. The affair would last five years, but they remained friends for a lifetime. Oh, (laughs) love that. Love to see it. Yeah. And during the relationship, she was absolutely catered to. She stayed at Eaton Hall, where her every whim was cared for. Her life was a never-ending season of royal cotillions and fancy musical dinners with full orchestras. While there was mass labor unrest in the late 20s and the Great Depression of the 30s, Chanel was living a luxurious lifestyle with the privileged upper class. In 1928, she went on a hunting trip with the Duke, and the party included Winston Churchill, who, like all men before him, adored Chanel. He wrote in a letter to his wife, and this is a quote, the famous Chanel turned up, and I took a great fancy to her. I love British people. A most capable and agreeable woman. Their friendship would last 30 years, and again, will be really important later when we get to the Nazi stuff. He wrote that to his wife? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a platonic way. I'm guessing because he wrote it to his wife. So I don't care. Let me find that text on my man's cell phone. (laughs) But it wasn't even a text. It it would be like a text directly to you. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, I hung out with this really famous clothing designer and I took a great fancy to her. (laughs) Question mark emoji, dot, 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 big eyes emoji, dot, 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 knife emoji. (laughs) Appropriate. The Duke was upset with Chanel's work ethic because he wanted her to have no other obligation than him, but Chanel only had two real loves of her life, herself and the house of Chanel. Yes, girl. Mm. Yes. I know. Exactly. I mean, you want to so many times for her. You're going to be like, no, girl, so many times later. He realized this and persuaded her to open a boutique in London so she could be closer to him, and it was an immediate success. Like, she had this golden touch. 
The Duke showered her with gifts, including a $3 million plot of land near Monte Carlo, where she built this beautiful villa. And $3 million back then? No, $3 million today. Oh, sorry. Yeah, $3 million today. Sorry. I, I adjusted all figures for inflation. So her metamorphosis was now complete, from orphan to practically a princess. Turns out the Duke was quite the anti-Semite, frequently referring to the British royal family as those bloody Jews, mistakenly under the impression that there was Jewish origin with certain members of the royal family. Not that it matters because he's an anti-Semitic asshole. There's a lot of those in this story. Eventually, Chanel and the Duke's relationship faded because Chanel wanted to be an independent woman. And the Duke had to be reminded by Winston Churchill of his royal duties to produce an heir and the fact that Chanel would never be accepted in court. She was also now in her mid-40s, and so the odds of her giving the Duke an heir were slim, but mostly because she didn't want to. Dang, I was really hoping she, like, parted ways because he was such an asshole. No. No. And that brings us to the biggest one of all, because Mm. now it's time for the Nazi stuff. No. (laughs) Let's just end it here. Mm. And the end. And she went on to just become a modern icon for feminism and independence and fashion. Go ahead and break my heart. All right. Meet Spats Dinklage. Nazi spy. (laughs) I know. That's a nickname. Spats is a nickname. but um... Oh, my God. Wine just went out my nose. (laughs) I'm so sorry. What is his name? Spats? Is a nickname, but I don't know what his real name is. I I did know it, but I didn't write it down, and I you get don't to choose your nickname, bro. Like I mean, take that back. I mean, yeah, Spats oh. Dinklage. So, um, <laughs> I'm not mature enough for this. <laughs> Move on. Just so Spats <laughs> Dinklage, Nazi spy, all around asshole, and would end up being the last love of Chanel's life in 1929. He was sent to Paris to pretend to be a wealthy German merchant. And he was pretty happy about that because he was able to escape all that economic turmoil I was talking about that plagued Germany at the time. Still can't escape that last name, though. No, can't. Just wait. Just wait. He spoke perfect French and English, so he was able to blend into society quite nicely. And his wife was half Jewish, which gave them this great cover story of being anti-Nazi Germans. Dinklage was moved around a bit, like to a post at the German embassy in Warsaw as a diplomat, but he returned to France in 1932, the same year Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected president of the United States. Around this time, Chanel, who was very poor at math and at business, became increasingly suspicious that she was being swindled in this deal for Chanel No. 5 with the Wertheimers. She grew resentful of the deal she signed in 1924, and she would spend the next 25 years fighting it. She was told by her accountants that the deal was in place because of the cost of marketing, distributing, and producing the perfume, but Chanel didn't care. She was convinced she was being swindled by the Wertheimers, and it didn't help that they were Jewish. At this point, she'd been raised by anti-Semitic nuns, had dated a line of anti-Semitic men, which only made her fears of the Jewish people grow. So she hired a young French-American attorney named René Deschambrun, to file lawsuits against the Wertheimers. She would lose them all, but would remain close with Shembrun, who would become instrumental during her World War II escapades, as it turns out- Another friend for life. Ah, another friend for life. This one was a Nazi collaborator, this friend for life. 
1933, Hitler became dictator of Germany and the Nazi secret police, the Gestapo, were formed. In 1935, Dinklage was made a special attache at the German embassy in Paris, giving him diplomatic immunity under which he would create a Nazi spy and propaganda network in Paris. He would retain this diplomatic immunity until after World War II, meaning he was never tried for war crimes. That's casual. Ugh. This same year, Hitler established the Nuremberg Laws, a series of laws aimed at Jews under the guise of protecting the superior German-Aryan race from the Jewish people. Mm. Among other things, it outlawed marriages between Jews and Aryans, and Dinklage must have seen this coming because he divorced his wife of 15 years about three months before the Nuremberg Laws came into effect. Because remember, she was half-Jewish. Around this time, Chanel moved into a fancy suite at the Ritz, where Dinklage would also take up residence. It would actually become the Nazi headquarters, pretty snazzy headquarters. Throughout this time, Chanel remained in contact with Churchill, writing letters back and forth through the turbulent 30s until Churchill became embroiled with politics dealing with the war. He would even visit her a few times at the Ritz as he was visiting Paris quite frequently, never really grasping how badly the war was being managed there. During World War I, Chanel had made a name for herself, liberating women's bodies from their corsets. But now with World War II, she could not see women spending a ton of money on dresses during the war, which she would later say was a mistake on her part. She was also super bitter about her employees, you know, the women who had like stitched her clothes from scratch, cut her gowns, ran her boutiques. Apparently they had really turned on her during the mass labor strikes in the 30s, you know, striking for higher wages. So to punish them, she fired all 3,000 of them, effectively effectively shutting down the House of Chanel. And that's where she kind of turns from feminist icon to, like, not. (laughs) You had me the part where you were, like, freeing women from their corset. When 5 o'clock hits after work and I get to take my bra off, it's, like, the happiest moment of my day. I know. Could you imagine wearing a corset all day? (sighs) Maybe. It lifts everything up. Oh, I mean, I could wear Spanx all day and it would hold it in, but I'm not gonna. Oh, man. <laughs> so by this time, her old boyfriend, the Duke, was a powerful pro-German nuisance in wartime England, probably a giant thorn in Churchill's side since they'd been pretty chummy. But Churchill seemed to have a blind spot where Chanel was concerned, one that could have gone very, very badly later on. So while she's living it up at the Ritz, the people of Paris are struggling. There are rations of meat and butter and pastries, but those at the Ritz were having lavish dinner parties. And though there was a shortage of food, they barely felt the change. It really was like this luxurious wartime oasis until, that is, the Germans began to invade. Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg all fell to the Third Reich, having surrendered, Chanel was desperate to get out of Paris, as were all Parisians, and eventually managed to flee to be with her family in another part of the country. She was dead. When you say her family, who do you mean if she was in that? Her sisters, her siblings. Oh. Yeah, her sisters and their kids that she was pretty close to. She was devastated to learn that France had been taken. It's also at this time that her nephew, Andre Palas, was imprisoned in a German Stalag, which is a prisoner of war camp. Andre was the son of her sister who committed suicide. Hang on. Did I say committed suicide? I need to go back and redo that because it's not committed suicide. Died by. Died by suicide or completed suicide. 
Mm. Why isn't it that? Because committed suicide makes it sound like a crime. Like you committed a crime. Yeah, I know it's supposed to be died by suicide. Yeah, that's – and I think it's important, so. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. It's also at this time that her nephew, Andre Palas, was imprisoned in a German stalag, which is a prisoner of war camp. Andre was the son of her sister who had died by suicide, but there's rumors that he was actually Coco's secret child with Balsan. Or maybe Capel. Yeah, I know. Nobody really knows. It was just rumors. But either way, she did unofficially adopt him when he was six years old after the death of her sister and sent him to a British boarding school. Chanel was not the motherly type, but she did love her nephew slash adopted son slash possible biological son. Hmm. And she was determined to return to Paris to attempt to free Andre, knowing it would have to be done through a powerful German official. The Paris she probably loved for life, maybe. <laughs> yes, he, she would love him for mm-hmm. life, actually. <laughs> the Paris Chanel returned to in 1940 was a very different Paris. A swastika is flying at the top of the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe. Nazis are marching down the Champs-Élysées, infiltrating our high society, taking over villas and apartments after evicting tenants and owners, and establishing their headquarters at the Ritz. I know that this is real life, but it's so hard to fathom. I know. Over time, Parisians grew accustomed to the German occupation. And in 1940, Chanel was 57 and once again looking for love. She finally found it in what would be her last great love affair with Spatz Dinklage, big time Nazi spy. No, not Dinklage. (laughs) Anyone but Dinklage. 
Her relationship with Dinklage gets her back into the Ritz, taking residence on the seventh floor at a time when the Ritz was reserved for members and friends of the Third Reich. So take that for what it's worth. I am. Those at the Ritz had to pass an armed sentry at sandbag stations in order to get in, but once you're inside, you're back to a life of luxury. For the privileged few, including Chanel and her friends, wartime Paris wasn't much different than peacetime Paris. While French people are starving in the streets, literally digging through trash on the side of the road, trying to find food, Chanel is enjoying full meals cooked for her by her personal chef at her apartment or by the chef at the Ritz restaurant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It does bring to mind the French Revolution and the bourgeoisie and the peasants. No wonder they wanted to chop their heads off. You're so much more cultured than me. I was like, this feels like me going through Kroger during COVID. (laughs) It's fine. That was my first thought. Like, uh, why is there no meat? Oh, or it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Why wasn't there? It was because people were buying it, right? Well, like, and I can't imagine you it. in Texas, like COVID plus hurricane, people wild out when there's hurricane coming. Well, yeah, but the hurricane wasn't until September and Harvey was a lot like COVID, but right. Harvey was worse. Harvey really was worse. But it was similar where there was very limited food at the grocery store. They actually had us line up and you had to be let in one at a time. And they came by and asked you, what are you getting? And I'm like, I just want to make cucumber sandwiches. Do you have bread? (laughs) And they're like, probably not. (laughs) Nobody ever wants to make cucumber sandwiches. Um, I was vegan at the time. So, oh man, I did that too once. RIP to our choices. Ah, yeah, no kidding. In 1941, Dinklage goes to Berlin where he was personally received by Hitler, a great honor for his Nazi ass. And by the time, (laughs) (laughs) and by the time he returned to Paris, he was one of the top members of German military intelligence called the Obwehr. Dinklage arranges a meeting for Chanel with another Obwehr agent named Waffenland. (laughs) (laughs) Chanel was desperate to get her nephew Andre out of the German camp, and she'd heard rumors he'd contracted tuberculosis, so it was an urgent matter to get him out. Waffenland says he can help her for a price. He wants to use her connections in London, Spain, and England for the benefit of the Nazi party. Oh, no. Vaufrenland also says he can help Chanel with that little matter of control over Chanel number five from the Wertheimers. His Obwehr boss, Neubauer, meets with Chanel and assures her he will help free Andre if she will consent to helping Germany obtain political information in Madrid. Chanel was super excited to get to go on a trip to Spain for the Nazis. Oh, spy. So sometime in 1941, the Abwehr enrolls Coco Chanel in their Berlin registry as agent F7124, codenamed Westminster, after her old boyfriend, the Duke of Westminster. No. So she legit has a codename. Yes. How, I mean, I know you read this book, but how is this not like out there? We'll get into it a little bit, but not really. These documents were very recently uncovered and they were spread out amongst seven different countries in their archives. It was really hard to get them all and piece them all together. And even now we don't have a complete full picture. Her agent number and code name are proven by a police report from the time that detailed her assignment as a German intelligence agent, as a Nazi spy. She had several missions she conducted as a Nazi spy. 
We know that on August 5th, 1941, Chanel and Lynn take off on a train for Spain after the Obwehr office in Paris called the German police in Spain and told them to make sure Chanel and Lynn don't run into any problems on their trip and to make sure they are taken care of during their stay. So she's being looked after by the Obwehr. French and British files both describe this mission as being part of a German intelligence operation to recruit more agents for Germany, to serve Germany. Chanel also saw it as an opportunity to free her nephew, who she expected to bring home with her, and to improve the, sh- the sale of Chanel number no. 5 in Spain. Okay, she's so a, check, check, yeah. check. She's a multitasking wizard. According to this book, the archives have all been destroyed. And so it's really hard to piece together Chanel's activities during this trip to Madrid. But we do know that she met with a British diplomat named Brian Wallace and his wife. And we know this because Wallace reported details of the dinner with Chanel back to London, where he said that she spoke openly about France's negative feelings of being occupied by Germany. That's really all we know about that trip. But wait, there's more. Upon her return to Paris in the fall of winter of 1941, Chanel found her nephew had been returned to Paris, though he was not in good health. He was treated at Chanel's expense for tuberculosis, and then he was sent to Switzerland to be cared for there. You know, say what you want about the Nazis, but apparently they, uh, they keep their word. <laughs> I guess. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. While Nazis are busy rounding up all the other Jews in Paris and sending them off to concentration camps... Chanel was showing a complete indifference to the plight of the Jewish French people. She has stated she was very happy living with her boyfriend, the Nazi, at the Ritz during this time, while there was unbelievable suffering of the people around her. And I think it's when you really get into this part of her story that there are just things that are unforgivable. I, I think forgiving her opportunism, excusing it as, well, she was a woman without a husband and she had to do certain things to get to a certain level in life, like you can kind of excuse that kind of stuff, but it's really when we get to this part of the story that you can't make excuses for her anymore. Yeah. This sounds really awful. Yeah. In fact, she'd had such great success getting her nephew freed. She wondered what else she could get from these Nazis in exchange for a few favors. That's that opportunism. That is that opportunism. And this is, this is where it gets really bad. Okay. I think this might be the worst thing that she ever did. There were a few other things, but all right. So Vofferlin told her he was going to help her take down the Wartheimers, you know, the guys that. Right. For the perfume. You know, yeah. And that they were going to get Chanel control of Chanel number five back from them. I want to also remind you while we're talking that though Chanel believed this was a terrible deal, she was doing nothing. The Wertheimers were producing, distributing, marketing, selling, all of it. And Chanel was getting 10% for picking out the scent that a Russian chemist and like she did the original grassroots marketing. I'm, I'm not going to say she had nothing to do with it. it. Sounds like after she picked it and like designed the bottle, she was done. Right. Right. And she still gets 10% and it's making them millions. I mean, they're all rich. Right. All right. So Vofferland arranges a meeting between Chanel and one of the senior Nazi officials in charge of the Aryanization of Jewish property, which I think is the worst phrase I've ever had to say in my entire life. Yeah. 
At this point, the Wertheimers had fled Europe for the United States, you know, due to the persecution of the Jews. And in the eyes of the law, Chanel was the only one that mattered. She was Aryan. They were not. She was in France. They were in America. They were Jewish. She was not. She was all ready to use these terrible Aryan laws to her advantage. Little did she know the Wertheimers were not stupid people. They had seen the German occupation coming as early as 1936. And remember, we're in in the 1940s now. And they saw to it that the company was handed over from their Jewish hands into the safekeeping hands of an Aryan friend of theirs who would take control of the company until such time that the Wertheimers could come back and reclaim it. Yeah, they're no dummies. No, they really weren't. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting for them to get screwed by this friend, you know? Yeah. But I mean, it all worked out. The friend was an aviation pioneer named Felix Amiot. Amiot was actually supplying bombers and weapons to the Germans, which is obviously terrible. But it was great for the Wertheimers because it meant that the Nazis left their, their company alone. Yeah. Because they were, you know, getting stuff out of it. Or from that is a bummer. I was about to be like, Felix is the true hero here. but I know. I know. No. There's no true hero. You can't. There's nobody no. good in this story. I'm trying to think of one good person in this story. And, uh, is oh, Andre saying There that? is. No, there is. There is one good oh. person. And we're going to get to him. Just oh, hold out hope because there is one yes. good guy. But then he's still under Chanel's spell. But he's a good guy. Okay, let's go. Since Amiot was supplying bombers and weapons to the Germans, the Nazis therefore left him and his company alone, and they would not let Chanel take it from him. Eventually, the Wertheimers would be able to return, and Amiot would hand the company back over to them. In 1943, Coco Chanel is now 60 years old, and she and her Nazi boyfriend devised a plan that would be called Operation Model Hut. And this was kind of the main Nazi mission that Chanel was known to have not only participated in, she was the main person. The purpose of the plan was to make contact with Chanel's good old buddy and close personal friend, Winston Churchill. Oh, he's back. And persuade him to negotiate with Germany. So she would tell him that some high German officials wanted Hitler removed from power and how that would be bad because it would leave Germany open to fall into Soviet hands. And at this time, many politicians, I would even say most politicians According to the Churchill biopic that I watched that was made by Hollywood, most of them in Britain were seeking to end the hostilities between Britain and Germany, and they wanted to come to some sort of peace negotiation with Germany. But Churchill was not about that, and many argue is the reason why Germany lost the war, because of Churchill's staunch resistance to negotiating peace with Germany. He was like, no, you guys suck. We're not doing that. But he said it much more eloquently. I like your version. Mm. In fact, Churchill and Roosevelt, our president, were demanding on behalf of the Allies for the complete unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. They were not going to do any deals, no peace negotiations. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Right. And I say that to show what Chanel was trying to do. And I want to remind you the power that Chanel just seemed to have over all these men in her life. They just adored her. They thought she was wonderful. She was very charming. Yeah, I mean, I understand. Very persuasive. So Dinklage starts offering up the services of Chanel to the Nazis to be able to use her high-level contacts in assisting German intelligence. He was proposing a mission to London and Madrid, the purpose of which would be to persuade Chanel's high-up friends to lend their support to the Nazis. So Chanel went to Berlin, straight into the lion's den, 
into the halls of Nazi power. Like I would I like to say that again. Christian <laughs> Lions Den. Oh, that's true. Oh, she, I want, I want to just reiterate that Chanel actually traveled to Berlin and went into the Nazi headquarters there to speak with Hitler's right-hand man and offer her services in communicating with her close personal friends, ex-boyfriend Duke of Westminster and good buddy Winston Churchill. From the transcript of the interrogation tape of an SS agent who was later caught, he says that Chanel was very interested in helping Germany and told him she had close contact with Churchill that could help Germany with their effort. Wow. Yeah. The first time that I looked into this, into the whole Chanel was a Nazi spy thing, I saw that she got into it because of her nephew. She wanted to free her nephew. And so I kind of made excuses for her because that, oh, she, she was doing something bad, but she, it was for her nephew. But really- Like she got wrapped up in a bad deal, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. No, it's, it's, not, it's not that she got wrapped up in a bad deal. It's that she didn't care. She wanted to be with whoever was going to make sure that she was on top. And whether that was the Axis powers or the allies, like whoever it was. But at the time, it was like, all right, these are the people in charge right now. So these are the people I'm going to, in Paris. So these are the people that I'm going to align myself with. And I'm going to do whatever I can because look at all these great things I'm getting out of it. I got my nephew back. I'm getting my my Chanel number five company back. I don't think that she was some hardcore anti-Semite that was doing this all just because she hated Jewish people or just because she was just going to take the path of least resistance and be on whatever side of history was most convenient because it doesn't sound like she was impacted. She was still living it up at the Ritz. She was still getting what she needed. She was able to use her contacts to get things that she needed. Yeah. And and that's exactly right. Like she, she was impacted positively. She wasn't one of the ones starving on the streets, but I also want to be clear. It's, just because she didn't necessarily hate Jewish people doesn't mean she gave a crap about him either. She, right. she just had a complete indifference. I think like she, she did not care. She was going to use whatever she could to her advantage. And that was how she kind of had always lived her life. She learned that that was the way that she had to be from a young age. I'm not excusing her behavior at all. I'm just saying for sure. It was a learned behavior that yeah, she, was she was rewarded for from day one. And she mm-hmm. stayed scrappy up until the end. And it's definitely not an excuse, but it is how she was. Right. Man, I, I just can't believe this isn't more well known about this. Yeah, I know. I, know. I mean, I really want to read this book, too. I mean, I'm very intrigued. Of, I mean, you did a great job of explaining, but it, I read it in two days. I will be burning all of my Chanel bags. (laughs) Well, hang on, hang on, hang on with that because we'll find out who actually owns Chanel, the name, and it's not Chanel. Okay. Plus plus she did, but it, it's not Chanel. Well, it's a good thing I have zero Chanel bags, but if (sighs) I did, I would burn them all. Mm. So like I said, there's this SS agent, he's being interrogated after he was caught later. And he said that Chanel was very interested in helping Germany and told him she had close contact with Churchill that could help Germany. 
The plan was for the release of Chanel's best friend, Vera Lombardi, who was currently in an internment camp in Italy after being arrested by the Gestapo in suspicion of being an agent for the British Secret Service. Vera would then take a handwritten letter by Chanel attempting to persuade Churchill to negotiate with Germany and deliver it to the British embassy in Madrid, who would then forward it on to Churchill. This is Operation Model Hut. People now say that this whole plan was ridiculous and it probably is, but I think we really need to take into account, like I said, how easily Chanel was able to charm everyone around her. Everyone that ever met her fell head over heels for her. Even her enemy, Pierre Wertheimer, adored her and later helped her after she sued him and tried to use his persecution by the Nazis against him to steal his company from him. Yeah. He still adored her. So I think we have to remember that she really had this presence about her that even Churchill was under her spell. I mean, they were friends through this whole time. They were friends for 30 years after they met. Um, He wrote his wife about how he fancied her. A master manipulator she is for sure. Yes. Do I think that Churchill would have been persuaded to negotiate peace with the Nazis just because Chanel asked him to in a letter? No. But if he had been, it could have been really bad. And I think that's the point. Anyway, Vera was released seven days after Chanel made this deal on orders from the German police headquarters, and they were both issued passports to Spain. Vera had no idea of Chanel's plans to get this letter to Churchill. She was under the impression that they were going to Madrid to look at opening a new business there. As soon as she arrived at the British embassy, Vera declared Chanel to be a Nazi spy and completely denounced her. Like, this was her lifelong best friend. (laughs) Dang. Yeah. Vera was also now under suspicion of working for the SS, and even after this whole thing, Chanel wrote a letter to Churchill, the contents... So we don't actually know what she wrote to him for Operation Model Hut. That letter has been destroyed. It's no longer in existence. We know what it was about, but we don't know the exact letter. This letter that she wrote to Churchill about her friend, we do know. And she actually pleaded with him to help Vera. And Churchill would later spend valuable time when he should have been fighting the Nazis trying to help Vera out of her predicament. Tuesday, June 6th, 1944, was the day that the BBC announced in France the invasion of Normandy and that France would soon be free. This was terrible news for Chanel, the Nazi collaborator slash spy slash agent. If the Germans were forced to abandon Paris, that would mean a trial and punishment for Chanel and other Nazi collaborators. Dinklage and other high members of German military intelligence began packing or burning their files as they prepared to flee Paris for Germany. The Ritz emptied as Nazis fled, Dinklage along with the rest, and Chanel moved out of the Ritz and into her apartment above Rue Cambon. She was 61 now, but could easily pass for 50. That's what Maybe she did age well. She'd had an on-again, off-again, 20-year relationship with this poet named Riverdi, which (sighs) I mentioned like a long time ago, but haven't mentioned again until now because there were just so many men. I know. I need like a web chart. I know. But this guy was actually not an anti-Semite, like the only one she ever dated. And he was actually a part of this French resistance group trying to fight Germany. 
Oh, so, is this the good guy? Is yes, this, the good this guy? is the only one that I can find in this story. Besides the Wertheimers, I guess. Yeah. So she decides now that Riberty can come in handy for her because she oh. needs him to go arrest Vaufrenland, who is the only Frenchman who can confirm her connection to the Nazis. So she convinces Riverde to go after Vaufrenland, find him, and arrest him. So Riverty finds Vaufrenland hiding in this apartment in Paris. And <laughs> Vaufrenland was quoted as saying something like, I don't know why the guy hated me so much, but he definitely seemed to have something against me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Chanel. Uh. <laughs> Vaufrenland was actually sent to the place where just recently Jewish families had had to wait for deportation to concentration camps. So karma. Yeah. Many of Chanel's close friends had good reason to go into hiding. Not only were they hiding from the police, but they were also hiding from the rest of France, who had lived for four years in squalid conditions as prisoners in their own country. And they had a lot of resentment for the Nazi collaborators like Chanel, who'd been living it up during that time. So two weeks after the French liberation, Chanel was arrested. It's estimated. Oh, really? Yeah, she was. It's estimated that between 30 and 40,000 Nazi collaborators were executed. And Chanel was not one of them. Right. Though she'd, been on a, <clears throat> yeah. Though she'd been on a blacklist since 1942 for suspected Nazi involvement, they had no records of Chanel's secret work. They did not know the details of her collaborations with the Obwehr or her 1941 mission with Vaufrenland in Madrid. Well, so they had, tell me this, though. It doesn't sound like she was covering her tracks to not have any of that evidence, more so that all of these men and all of her connections were probably protecting her because she's so charming and she has a way with people. It is definitely both of those things. I think you'll see, I'll show you how smart she was at covering her tracks. Like, for example, Reverdy, getting him to go arrest Vaufrenland. In terms of not having the evidence, I think that might just be because they were shredding everything. Like, they were burning, right. not even shredding, I don't know if they were shredding. They were burning <laughs> papers, packing them, taking them to Germany. She... Yeah, she, she did some, some things to help herself. Just you wait. Above all, they had no idea that she had been the key figure in the Model Hut peace attempt. So she was released. Though there's no proof of it, many of Chanel's biographers agree that Churchill had something to do with her release. It's actually speculated that Chanel had some blackmail on Churchill, who supposedly paid off German officials to protect the Duke of Windsor's residence in Paris which was illegal at the time because of this No Trading with the Enemy Act of 1939. A biographer for the Windsor family said that if Chanel had been made to stand trial, she might have exposed some members of the Windsor family as Nazi collaborators, and the royal family couldn't have that. Smart. Yeah. After her release, Chanel made an abrupt departure from Paris after receiving a letter from the Duke of Westminster telling her there was no time to lose and she needed to leave France immediately. That's Chanel what I mean. She has people like looking out for her. Yes, yes. And Chanel's luck knew no bounds. Later, a judge opened a case against her, the file of which has since disappeared, but an index car rem card remains, labeled with her name and the code for espionage. The judge and got there's the no file. There's no file. The judge got the papers showing that Chanel was a Nazi agent with a code name and everything but she knew how to stand up to questioning. She denied everything. Every point brought up against her 
She denied. She said she knew Vafrenland from her time at the Ritz and that he had simply offered to help free her nephew for her. She said she'd tried to give him money, but he declined. She said her trip to Madrid was a business trip. She said she tried to reach out to the Duke of Westminster as he was an old friend and she heard he was ill, but that she'd never tried to contact Churchill. And she said she knew nothing of them assigning a code name or an agent number and said the whole thing was ridiculous. How, actually- how can, how, how is that possible? Like, how is no one else being like, well, actually. <sighs> I don't know why Vaughrenland stayed quiet. I don't know because he was sentenced to six years in prison after Chanel testified against him. So I don't know what kept Vaughrenland quiet, but I do know what kept some other people quiet. After Chanel testified against Vaughrenland, she made her way back to Switzerland. And by 1949, no one was interested in connecting Chanel to her collaborations with the Nazis. The details of her collaborations were hidden for years in, here we go, French, German, Italian, Soviet, and U.S. archives. I think they've only recently been discovered, which actually led to the writing of this book about it, which all of the articles, before I went ahead and got the book and read the book, I was looking up articles about it, but I couldn't get enough information, which is why I got the book. And every article I read kept citing this book as like their only source for this information. So I just think until Hal Vaughn, the author of this book, decided to put all these pieces together, nobody realized. So Hal Vaughn is the real hero of this. Like I did not do yeah. this research. <laughs> he's, he's the one that put all this together who scoured these archives for these documents, but her four years of collaboration with the Nazis, her anti-Semitism, and her attempt to use Nazi Aryanization laws to um, hurt the Wertheimers were just ignored. She went on to lead a pretty low-key life in Switzerland with her Nazi boyfriend, Dinklage. There are photos of them together on ski trips as late as 1949, so well after the end of World War II. They're I still she's together. in Switzerland. Yeah, she left Paris for Switzerland after the war. But Chanel never stopped worrying about the fact that there were people out there with knowledge of her involvement with the Nazis. She began buying the silence of some that knew. And in fact, Heinrich Himmler's right-hand man, Schulenberg, had inside knowledge on Chanel. And after his release from prison, he announced he'd written a memoir with plans to publish it. So Chanel, through her trust, set him up in a nice little apartment in Switzerland The Swiss didn't like a war crime living there and he was evicted from the country. But later when his book, The Labyrinth, was released, no mention of Chanel. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Pierre Wertheimer continued to adore Chanel despite their 40-some-year quarrels. And again, the fact that she used Aryanization laws against him or tried to, (laughs) a Jewish person. He ended up settling with her where she basically agreed to sell him her company outright for about $9 million dollars. And they would pay for all of her expenses for the rest of her life. She sold Chanel, like she sold her company to him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can't get over how she's like getting out of everything. But it also sounds like she lived in fear, which sounds like a miserable way to spend the last years of your life. Well, maybe she was. I think she lived in fear up to a point and then nobody cared anymore. Yeah. And the people that could have turned on her didn't. So she sold them her company for $9 million and they would pay for all of her expenses for the rest of her life. Her rooms at the Ritz, her maids, chefs, 
her chauffeurs, all her bills, all in exchange for her continuing to assist with the development of new perfumes and run her couture house. It was a great deal for Chanel and an insane moneymaker for the Wertheimers. Family continues to own the entire Chanel name to this day. Really? Mm-hmm. Which is why I said maybe don't burn your purses just yet because it's the Wertheimers that own them. Gabrielle Coco Chanel passed away in her room at the Ritz on January 10th, 1971. Her maid said her last words were, well, that's how one dies. Oh my God. I know. And that is the story of how style icon Coco Chanel was actually an anti-Semitic Nazi spy. And I actually believe all of that and kind of think she's terrible. (laughs) Well, and it's all, if you read the book, it's all backed up. They have documents in the book, like embedded in the book. They have photos in the book. You know, it was a very thoroughly researched book. It was hard to get a chronological order from the book because it, would bounce around like we're in the 1920s and we're in the 1910s and the 1940s. And I'm like trying to get a cohesive narrative going, but it was really good. I'd highly recommend it because it does have all of those documents in there. It has the transcripts of Chanel, her arrest of her trial or whatever. It wasn't really a trial. It was like an interrogation. They have the whole transcript of that in there. So you can see exactly what she said and how she responded and, Drop the name of that book again. Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War by Hall Vaughn. Was Hall sleeping with her? <laughs> no. <laughs> Got it. I don't think he had any personal knowledge. And I did read an a interview with him because somebody asked him, what do you think people should feel about Chanel now? And he was like, you know, I don't really have a lot of opinions on her and what she did and what happened I'm just kind of giving the information and it it very much is a this is what happened this is who said it happened yeah here are some rumors a lot of the anti-semitism stuff is rumors because there's sources that say that she never spoke an anti-semitic word in her whole life and then but there are multiple sources that are saying that no she was kind of known to to say that kind of stuff. And I think later in life, she said stuff like, I don't give a crap if they're Jewish or not. Like, I don't care. And maybe that was true by the time she was in her 70s. And maybe that was true, you know, earlier too, that she didn't give a crap whether or not they were Jewish, but not in a good way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was in the, I don't care about anybody but myself. This is better for me. Aligning myself with the Nazis this is, is better for me. Ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I get stuff out of this deal. And so, you know, that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I do think it's important too, to say that like, obviously through this podcast and talking about this, you know, we're trying to tell the story and we may have made some comments, but I think that, you know, it's safe to say that we both feel very strongly um, about, you know, the, the not being a shitty anti-Semite. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the tragedy (laughs) that was the Holocaust. But if anyone does have, Chanel number five and after this episode is feeling like they need to pour it out. If you send it to me, I've never smelt it. I I could use it for research. So (laughs) drop it in the mail. Yeah. That's the story of um, Coco Chanel being a Nazi. I thought it was a interesting story to tell. Yeah. I'm really glad that you did. I really had no idea. And I don't think that I would have seen or read about that anywhere else. So I'm sure that other people will feel 
pretty enlightened by that. Okay. I will have my sources. It really was just that one book, you know, that's really where all I did read some other articles, but they were all citing the book. So I'll just kind of list them all. Adding that to my Christmas list. For and the sure. show notes. Good yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> that was really good though. I had no idea. I really do want to read that book. Good. Good. I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you Gosh, so much. Great job. You're really carrying the team here. Sorry, mm. I don't bring a lot mm. to the table, but uh, no, I really enjoy it. Should we maybe talk about your uh, mic issues from the very first episode? <laughs> <laughs> that you have this really nice mic, and then you oh. didn't check the Zoom, and you were recording with your AirPod mics. <laughs> yeah, for all the fans that we have, they're going to come over my neck over the audio problems. I just want to say that. I was overly excited. I did purchase a mic and then I took an AirPod out and put it back in and it switched my mic. But now we check before every recording. We check before every recording. Hopefully it's better. Yes. So I am- The people are going to come for us, you know, all the fans. (laughs) Okay. So I have a correction to make, Mogab. In our, so this is a, a new segment of the podcast called Correction Corner. (laughs) <laughs> Kristen's corrections. Chris, Kristen's corrections. There we go. I like it. Um, so in the first episode that we did, the Richard Glossop episode, we talked about how um, one of the things that really seemed weird about his activities that day was that um, the window had been broken in the room that the that his boss had been murdered in. But oh, yeah, nobody, I remember that. Yeah, and nobody had found the body at that point. And Richard had fixed, had replaced the window, had fixed the window. And we were talking about how I guess you don't need to like go into the room to see it. It was really weird that he hadn't seen the body when he's replacing the window. Well, I got a correction that um, the Save Richard Glossop Instagram page actually had messaged me and they said that actually what happened was they didn't replace the window that day. It was just that he had covered the hole in the window with a piece of plexiglass. And so it was just done from the outside. And also they, they told us that um, Justin Sneed, the actual murderer in this case, had hung up a shower curtain on the inside of the window so that you couldn't see through. So I wanted to make that correction. And we're going to post that picture of the window and the plexiglass on our Instagram page so people can see that and kind of make up their minds. That definitely um, kind of changes where I was at when you told me that part of it, because I'm thinking of like a full window replacement. You're leaning forward. You're doing the whole thing top to bottom. If you're just putting up plexiglass, which I've never done, but I have boarded up windows with plywood, you know, for hurricane stuff. I'm, I'm assuming it's pretty much the same. You just kind of like put it up there. Um, and it's definitely kind of a, um, band-aid fix, if you will. So, um, and that's that's what it looks like in this picture that he just put the plexiglass up until he'd be able to actually replace the window at a later time. So, oh my gosh, that window, I'm looking at the picture now, that window is much different than I was picturing also. Yeah. It's a lot smaller, right? And higher up. Like I feel like windows are usually down low. So you would kind of lean over and see the whole room where this is almost like chest level, which I don't feel like is what I think of when I think of hotel windows, really. No. Yeah, exactly. So definitely wanted to put that correction out there. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll know exactly when our next episode drops, when I'll tell MoGab all about an unbelievable story of rape. 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CreepersPod or email us at CreepersPod at gmail.com. Please be sure to rate us, review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, peeps and creeps.